Hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here and I'm with my friend Mick Broderick and we're laughing at my technological malfeasances, failures, incapacities. That's Murphy's Law. To use technical language, fuck ups. <laughs> so Mick, thanks a lot for coming along. Thanks for inviting me. And I wondered if we could chat about what's on your mind, what's on your desk, what's coming out of your ears and tongue and whatnot. Lots of things on my desk. It's a bit like W.C. Fields in the bank deck. You know, he's, like, <laughs> he's the memory expert, so there's clutter everywhere. But I, I manage to extract things now and then, often um, not to deadline. But um, there's a few balls in the air. Um, right now, the uh, Dr. Strange Love book, which I've been working on for nearly a decade, um, is, is about to come out. This is about the Stanley Kubrick film, Dutch Strange Novel, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Exactly right. So I was fortunate enough to be given um, exclusive access to the Kubrick archives in 2005. Went to uh, the family home north of London and spent two weeks there uh, photographing, <coughs> pardon me, photographing a huge amount of files. I mean, Kubrick deeply researched every project, but also um, kept all of the material. So after his death, I approached the family and they very kindly allowed me to come in as a, as a researcher. Right. Um, particularly interested in um, the correspondence between what Kubrick knew at the time or anticipated at the time. Uh, this was the peak of the Cold War. He was, he was developing this um, film between the Berlin crisis and um, the Cuban Missile Crisis and went into production after that period. Comes out 64? Uh, late 63. It was actually mm -hmm. due to have its um, official screening the day JFK was assassinated. 22nd of November 63. Correct. So that uh, screening was cancelled. But in order to make the uh, next year's Academy Awards uh, qualification, it had to have a limited run. So it, had, it did have a 63. Right. Very oh, early kind of Christmas for about a week it ran. Interesting, because everyone thinks it's 64. That's right. I'm not the only person. Yeah, That's right. Okay. Right. Anyway, so, so it was a long time in gestation and, as you say, at the very peak of the Cold War. Yeah. So I'm particularly interested in looking at um, the increasingly declassified uh, documents that are coming out of America yeah. that show how prescient the film actually was, particularly because the film's premised on this idea that a, a, a psychotic general launches um, an unauthorised attack against Russia. And at the time, this was poo-pooed as an idea. We had all these safeguards and fail-safes that prevented this mechanisms, human reliability tests, all these kinds of things. But increasingly over the decades, more and more declassifications have shown not only the type of accidents that were occurring regularly involving you know, thermonuclear weapons being dropped out of planes or planes colliding, what have you, but also that as uh, far back as President Eisenhower, They'd instituted a thing called uh, pre-delegation to lower echelon commanders for the expenditure of nuclear devices. <laughs> I.e. the president doesn't know where to bomb something. Well, the idea is that the president may not be available, could not be reached, may have been taken out because of an attack or some other thing. Mm -hmm. Therefore, lower echelon commanders could um, have the authority to effectively, preemptively, uh, launch a, an attack. So this has now come out and we've seen all the documents and we've seen how this could work. So the premise of Strange Love and the book upon which it was based was entirely uh, accurate. So these are the types of things I'm mapping. Um, the way uh, Kubrick worked with Herman Kahn and the genius of Strange Love changing from what was going to be a very straight dramatic thriller into what Kubrick turned a nightmare comedy. So realising that the grotesque was inherent and intrinsic to the nuclear mindset 
that enabled us to live and still live under this Damoclean sword where launch on warning, missiles are on alert, and there are thousands of these things that we now know could bring about the nuclear winter. So for you, it's definitely the Hudson think tank guys. It's not Teller that's the model for strange. I have a chapter that forensically goes through all the all, all, the, all, all, all the, the potential crazy men, crazy white men who might exactly, be exactly right. Model. So Edward Teller, the so-called father of the H bomb in America, uh, Herman Kahn. Now Kahn met with uh, Kubrick and Kubrick's wife. I have a hilarious interview with. Uh, Christiana Kubrick, where she talks about coming back from dinners with um, Herman Kahn and Stanley, and they're driving home, and they'd be saying to each other, did, did, did he say 10 million dead? No, no, I think it was like uh, 50 million dead. And, and they spontaneously erupt into kind of black laughter, appalled and shocked at this stuff. So you can see how that comic impulse to actually deal with the insanity of this nuclear mindset started to emerge and change Kubrick's perspective from, you know, I just can't treat it in this serious way. So this is a, as opposed to a movie like Failsafe exactly a few right. years earlier, which is very similar in lots of ways, but deadly serious. Well, in actual fact, Failsafe was a competing film. So, uh, oh, it's the same period? It's oh, the same period. Pardon my ignorance, yeah. No, 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 and there's a very interesting story, which again, the book will uncover. There was a plagiarism suit launched by Kubrick the writer Peter George and uh, the film company against the producers of Failsafe. Now, as a result of that litigation, um, the producer of Failsafe more or less lost his slate of films that were about to go into production. So uh, that particular production went on a kind of fire sale. So Columbia, that was bankrolling Dr. Strangelove, picked up Faust. Ah. So, so Kubrick... came in legal terms, the author of both. Well, Kubrick instituted a clause that said um, Failsafe can't be released uh, until six months after the release of Dr. Mm -hmm. Strangelove. Mm -hmm. So, of course, Failsafe became shot very quickly. It was in the can while Kubrick was still tinkering around with the editing. Notoriously, the pie fight sequence, which got taken out, and um, JFK's assassination meant that they had to leave a, a kind of modest period of respect um, because this was a fairly disturbing film um, and it was a, a comedy and the president potentially was being ridiculed along with the Joint Chiefs and the whole kind of military echelon. So mm -hmm. at, a, at a time of great national tragedy, the Columbia executives thought, we should defer this for a little bit. So that ended up uh, meaning that fail, the poor producers of Failsafe, as, as Jimmy Harris, uh, Kubrick's long-term producer, collaborator, said, that legal suit totally fucked Failsafe because it had to wait. So your book is based massively on archives mm. of the family and of the government, which mm. no one would have seen mm. until very recently, and in mm. some cases no one except you, and also with an interview with his wife. Oh, and, yeah. and I presume you do textual analysis, yeah. widow, I should say, textual analysis yeah. of it. So it's classical textual analysis, but it's based on uh, archival historical records, plus oral histories with participants. So uh, James B. Harris, his producer, they mm -hmm. separated before... Um, they worked on this project together as the straight thriller. Then uh, Harris went on to make The Bedford Incident, which was his debut film, which was also a nuclear thriller, a straight one, a couple of years later, by Columbia, coincidentally. Um, Kubrick's long-term uh, attorney, Lou Blau, and uh, the estates of all three writers. So I worked with his daughter, um, 
Kubrick's daughter. I worked with Peter George's son, and I worked with uh, Terry Southern's son. Um, so they've all been informed. Having Terry Southern or Stanley Kubrick as a parent. <laughs> well, the funny thing is that all these mythologies that circulate, and this is part of the agenda for the book, is mm. to demythologize these perceptions. Uh -huh. Because people like John Baxter write this right. biography of Kubrick, and that's full of crap, uh -huh. to be fair. Okay. Um, so, you know, having visited the home, spent time with the family and friends, I could see why people would flock to this place. It was a lovely, warm, inviting place where, mm. you know, Kubrick didn't go out to see people. People came to him. He no. wasn't a recluse. He was actually very sociable, but he didn't waste a second on worrying about what clothes to wear or what food to eat because his creative mind was entirely absorbed by the project du jour. And Terry Southern was just a quiet suburban dad <laughs> dedicated to the family. Terry, of course, was a hipster. And, um, you know, he cut his teeth with, uh, with Strange Love and that, that was his entree into Hollywood. And while he was there, um, you know, polishing script drafts, uh, adding kind of ideas for bits of dialogue in particular, uh, he was hanging out with all kinds of people in what was emerging to be swinging London in the 60s. Perfect, perfect time to be there. And this book is located in a history you have going back decades of thinking about nuclear film. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know you were talking about the present too, but could you take mm. us back, given the topicality? Sure, of, sure. Well, I guess the road to Strangelove um, started in my childhood. I've often ruminated on what led me to be particularly interested in the cultural uh, manifestation of the atomic era. I mean, I, I grew up, I was born in 1959 in Melbourne, exactly the same time that um, Stanley Kramer brought his film crew to shoot on the beach. Where Ava Gardner said, it's a great place to make a movie about the end of the world. Apocryphally. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. this is also untrue. That, that's, that's right. Well, she may have said it, but it was reported by Neil Gillett in the Sydney Morning Herald as ah. a kind of a shit-stir against Melbourne well. to, to enhance that rivalry, of course. But funnily enough, Stanley Kramer in his biography and in another um, work uh, uses that statement as if it was a fact. So whether or not they were literally the words of Ava Gardner, she certainly expressed those sentiments because Melbourne would have been an incredible backwater in those days, having grown up there well, as a kid. Until you were born. And then <laughs> really... As um, then it was the end of the world. You know, <laughs> in the years after mixed birth, really the place was terrible. That's right. Melbourne's now just... Um, it's MB59. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so, you know, whether or not... I would hear stories about Hollywood coming to, to Melbourne. But mostly, I think, it was because I grew up as a television child. So uh, I watched a hell of a lot of television. Um, and in fact, Australia at that time, as you know, was awash with foreign imported product because we didn't really have any regulation that um, mandated particular local content. So I got to watch the best, uh, the prime cuts, the prime ribs of American, British, Japanese uh, television. So I was watching anime, I was watching uh, detective shows, science fiction series, old reruns of Superman, um, The Avengers, as you well know. Mm -hmm. All of these things had unbelievable amounts of atomic themes. Now at the time, of course, I didn't recognise them as such, but in my late teens, um, I rediscovered Strange Love and the black comedy and realised that you could actually make social criticism in a way that wasn't didactic, that, that cut through people's predispositions towards the unique immediacy of comedy. Mm. 
And then, you know, there were a few films that, uh, of that era, The Bed Sitting Room by Richard Lester, very kind of goonish humour. Um, but in particular, I became politicised and animated by the, the neo-Cold War of the late 70s and early 80s. Mm. So, a bit of a product of punk rebellion, but also at a time when, um, you know, we were mining uranium, we were um, starting to talk about land rights, Indigenous um, uh, say in what gets extracted from their, their uh, traditional lands. Um, we had the Reagan-Thatcher coalition, we had MX missiles, potentially being lobbed into the Pacific south of Tasmania. We had B nuclear-armed B-52s coming in and landing in Darwin. We had an array of American uh, intelligence and communications and command and control bases dotted throughout our remote uh, you know, nation as part of a kind of sovereign gift to the American nuclear umbrella under the pretext that this would protect us in, in the event of a, of a nuclear war. But of course, these were primary nuclear bullseyes, which meant Perth, um, in particular, where we are sitting now, had uh, a Soviet ICBM struck uh, the Stirling um, uh, naval base. The fallout, of course, due to prevailing winds, would have just taken out Fremantle and most of Perth. So, while I never had nuclear nightmares per se, I was, I was enriching myself in the language and um, the politics and the resistance, the cultural resistance in particular, to the nuclear age. People were talking about documentaries a lot, but no one was looking at feature films. No one was looking at television because this was regarded as somehow not worthy. Popular culture, mm. ugh. Mm. You know, we, we need to resist and fight this at a higher cultural level. So I started doing a, a very broad taxonomy of films that um, historically had dealt with the nuclear theme. I kind of thought there'd be 100, 200. After about a year's work, I'd found over 500 and a little bit more time had found nearly a thousand films. And this was going up to about 1988. I bought the book that came out of it in the right. first edition that okay. you did, I guess, right? Yeah, the, yeah, the one with the, the funny cover on the... It was a, it was a kind of large-ish format. Yes, A4. A4 paperback. Yeah. Nice illustrations, fun cover. Mm. The more sober-looking hardback that I was <laughs> yes. looking at recently doesn't do justice to no, the glory no. of the first edition. No. Well, originally it was actually going to be um, reprinted by um, UPI Press, uh, University Press International. But uh, they were going to reprint it um, as was, but then McFarlane took it over. So, uh, yes, it lost that fun aspect to it. And that's something I wanted to engage with. I wanted to be yeah. a, a kind of culture jammer in some ways and mm. looking at this nuclear genre and how it emerged and mm. how it coincided with both predictively and reactively to what was going on geopolitically at the time. Mm -hmm. So one of the things, Toby, about doing these, you know, big picture, you know, large pattern recognition things is that you can match um, historical peaks and troughs around mm -hmm. themes, ideas, uh, historical circumstance, and, you, and you, you see patterns. The trap, of course, is that a priori, any generic analysis, you you go looking for what you look for. <laughs> but with, with, with a big enough um, survey of material, um, you can find these things. So that's what really got me into thinking about um, representations of nuclearism and the apocalyptic, mm -hmm. which became the, the source of my PhD study, thinking about how uh, we can continue to narrate and engage culturally with ideas of the apocalyptic, and that coincided at a time when uh, critical theory was saying it's the end of ideology. 
it's the end of these grand narratives. But everywhere I looked, the grand narrative apocalypse <laughs> was, was not only manifest, but um, seemed to be uh, approaching its zenith. And now, the apocalyptic is, is more replete than it was towards well, the end. Well, it's interesting. The apocalyptic is now about the environment in a more general sense. And some of the people who are trying to avoid the apocalypse are saying, we've got to rethink nuclear. People like George Monbiot, for example. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that this, to me, is a complete fallacy um, for a number of reasons, which would take another podcast to... Um, but the point about nuclear is uh, it's green and clean for a very tiny, minute aspect of its production chain. So once the reactor's built and it's operating at full capacity, mm. it's generating its own electricity to run its own electricity generation. But the lead up, the production cycle, all the environmental contamination, the remediation, the reparation of those mines, uh, the type of labour that's involved with that, um, plus the transport of these goods and materials to that site, then at the end of the reactor's lifetime, it costs billions and billions of dollars and takes decades to decommission that stuff. And there's nowhere for it to go. You cannot put this stuff anywhere. I talked to some engineers in Colombia, some German guys, last year, who build these things. Although they were working on actually coal transportation from coal fields to ports mm -hmm. in Colombia. They, they were going on about how green everything is, how wonderful it will be, how much better it is than this coal stuff we're doing, blah, blah, blah. And I looked at them and then they said, but actually, we don't know where to put it. We don't know how to keep it safe. Nobody knows how long you could keep it safe. And that's the deep, dark secret that yeah. won't be spoken. Yeah, and also, not only is that, you know, we're really talking about deep time here. Yeah. Um, we're talking about millennia, tens of millennia, scores of millennia, to safeguard this. I mean, you know, you, you think back about the pyramids, you know, you're talking mm -hmm. about a factor of ten beyond that time. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the ability to geologically manage that let alone socially and politically manage those things, is, is beyond imagination. Mm. And of course the cost is that that will have to be resourced in some way. So apart from the billions and billions of dollars of remediation, the long-term preservation and safeguarding of that material um, will be in the trillions and trillions of and dollars. It, and it is always going to be the taxpayer's responsibility That's because right. these industries are just not commercially viable until vast expenditure at the beginning and ongoing expenditure at the end. And of course that's the other lie, the, the great uh, taxpayer subsidies that go into this entire industry. People talk about the subsidisation of um, fossil fuel industries, absolutely, but if you look at the uh, taxpayer subsidisation of the nuclear industries, yeah, that as you say, um, will walk away from any catastrophe like TEPCO has done, mm. like uh, the various other kind of utilities that have had nuclear accidents, they're uninsurable. Mm -hmm. So government, meaning us, taxpayers have to um, mm -hmm. bail these things yeah. out. Well, I've driven you back into your dark past as a child, watching Japanese cartoons on Australian television in the mid-60s. Atom Boy? Yes. For example. Yes. But when we opened up the conversation, you said that you had three things that are ongoing at the moment. One is this, in a sense, apogee of all your nuclear work, even though it's focused on one film, but it is the most famous film about these things, apart from Godzilla, of course. And tell us about the other two things, maybe that. Okay. Well, just quickly. Your febrile a, mind. Just, just, just burning a, up. As, as a kind of <laughs> seg segue from 
the intellectual, archival, textual analysis of, of you know, kind of mass culture, but also now high art um, productions. I've been working increasingly over the last decade or so with communities affected by um, these types of technologies. So Hibaksha, meaning bomb-affected person, was originally used to describe uh, the victims of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But as many people have, have noted, you know, due to uh, not only the production of the military but the civilian um, use of nuclear energy, uh, this affects a lot of communities worldwide and there was for at least um, four decades atmospheric nuclear testing which meant that all the nuclear powers as they became nuclear powers would explode their devices um, into the atmosphere and this created uh, you know trillions of backrails, curies of radiation that circulated around the globe eventually came down as fallout and this is in our food chain so in a sense we're all um, products of the atomic age. We, you and I sitting here we have radionuclides in our bodies, in our bones from those atmospheric tests. So fortunately, atmospheric nuclear testing slowly was phased out by the nuclear powers. But, um, so in a sense, we're all global hibaksha, but I've been doing community work with a good colleague in Japan, uh, Robert Jacobs at the Hiroshima uh, City University, where we've gone and met with second and third generation nuclear survivors of those atmospheric testing. So Kazakhs in what used to be the former um, Soviet Union, uh, Marshall Islanders in the, in the Pacific, um, Algerians uh, where the French were testing in the, in the mm -hmm. 60s, um, Tahitians in French Polynesia and of course Indigenous Australians. Um, we've spoken with service personnel that were also involved in, in this and their families. So if you extrapolate out from the immediate effects on families, you're talking hundreds of thousands if not millions and often these populations are in, it's another form of colonialism. Uh, the, the nuclear age was an extension of colonialism, but the kind of nuclear colonialism that was um, advent after Trinity, Hiroshima and Nagasaki meant that in collusion with other colonial powers, the US, the British, the Russians, the French, um, all started to work in their colonial territories uh, to marginalise populations and basically um, take them away, um, contaminate them or uh, create such social rupture that education, health issues, all these kinds of employment um, made it very difficult for these communities. So we've been working with uh, those communities, particularly at the third generation level, the grandchildren, because a lot of these things happened 50, 60 years ago so that they can help record and understand why they are living the way they are where they are. Because a lot of these communities were displaced or there's a lot of trauma and part of the latency of that trauma is these things often aren't talked about by the first generation, certainly not to the second generation. So there's often an absence, a failure to kind of talk about why they feel this way, what's troubling them both socially and, and, and psychologically and emotionally. But with the third generation, with the grandchildren, we've noted that um, there's a possibility of, of a relaxation, a lack of sense of shame or responsibility that you may have with your children, but you feel freed up to discuss with your grandchildren. So we've been um, training small cohorts of um, 
potentially future community leaders in these global Hibakusha territories to come together to work in workshops where we, we train them in the ethical use of oral history digital testimony um, with the idea that they'll not only record these stories but just record culture, record aspects of communal life um, as a way of preserving and passing on the baton of knowledge into the digital era with digitally native um, young people. So that's that project. The third workshop's going to take place in Central Australia in the middle of this year. Um, and hopefully, again, it will be some consciousness raising, passing on some um, knowledge that will percolate out throughout those communities. And it may take another generation for that really to, to kick off. But the important thing is that it's their stories, they control the information, they circulate it the way they want to circulate it. Unlike a lot of anthropologists, academics that parachute into these places, run away with their information, make their careers out of it, do all the nice things, and the community never sees benefits. Mm. So um, it's also good to get these community representatives together so they can share those stories too. For people interested, is there a way that non-participants can listen to any of this material, see any of this material? If you um, type in Global Hibakusha, that's H-I-B-A-K-U-S-H-A, -A um, you'll probably find a website or two. And there's also, uh, uh, this was another project that I was relating to, uh, an Australia Council-funded arts project called Nuclear Futures, which is now in its third year, um, where they have helped support these Global Hibakusha workshops and they will help support the one in, in Central Australia. But that's also Australian artists coming together to help record and preserve the stories, not only the Indigenous um, survivors, but also the service personnel, the whistleblowers, the people that lost their lives, that are searching for answers. So Nuclear Futures is another useful website that will have some information on some of these activities. Going back to cinema for a moment, wasn't there that John Wayne film, Genghis Khan, yeah. where every person shooting it, allegedly anyway, died from cancer? Not necessarily every person, Toby, but a hell of a lot of the cast died prematurely from a range of cancers. A range of cancers. And, and that was shot? Shot in Utah. Um, and I've actually been to the place where that was shot. I've, uh, it's, it's a beautiful location. Um, and... What they did was the production crew shot a lot of second unit film and actual real production shots, you know, first unit work in the desert of mm -hmm. Utah, mm -hmm. but they picked up vast amounts of sand and took it back to the RKO studio. So this was irradiated sand from a fallout, uh, from the fallout of a, of a nuclear test in Nevada, not far away, because the prevailing winds would take mostly... Um, the fallout from any of those Nevada tests, not mm. towards Los Angeles, but towards the uh, northeast across uh, Utah. And there's a town called St. George, which was endlessly contaminated. And you can uh, do a web search on St. George fallout, and you'll see these Atomic Energy Commission information films, or really disinformation films, saying to the people of St. George, hey, you know, this is okay, just close the blinds, close the doors wait for the fallout to pass, everything will be fine. So um, it was clearly a time of indoctrination and clearly a time where, you know, the collateral damage uh, was the civilian population of America because they were the frontline troops just as much as the soldiers marching into ground zero. It was, um, you know, vast amounts of cancers that were created not only in the United States but 
uh, throughout the world through this at atmospheric testing. So they took the sand back to RKO, to the lot, mm. to use it mm. for That's studio when, based. Yeah, so when, 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 when John Wayne would walk out of the camp, out of his tent, um, as Genghis Khan, well, the sand on the studio floor was the sand from Utah that had been irradiated by the fallout from the um, bomb. Now, the problem with this is that it's very difficult to retrospectively reconstruct dose, um, uh, to calibrate the kind of dosages and the mm. types of radiations. So a lot of these people smoked heavily, a lot of them drank heavily, a lot of people would have had, you know, various kinds of, you know, hereditary cancers, possibly. Yeah. But the coincidence of that many cast and crew dying prematurely due to a range of cancers over that period of time is pretty incontrovertible that there would be an association with some cancers that are recognised as um, being generated through fallout from these mm -hmm. atomic devices. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay, so there's that project and then there's a third, I think. So the third is one... It, can it be something happy? Uh, well, there should be lots of happy coincidences. <laughs> the happy coincidence in this project is looking at um, films that were made in Australia from the end of World War II up until about the early advent of the video age, so about 1980. So I'm working with Ross Gibson at the University of Canberra, Dean Williams at uh, Monash University, and we also have as our postdoc the great Australian documentary filmmaker John Hughes. So we're working with uh, three PhD candidates to examine what we call utilitarian filmmaking. So these are films that haven't really been recognised through conventional preservation or archival processes. Um, they haven't been given the recognition from film scholarship because they're mostly industrial, scientific, educational films that we all know and have seen and increasingly become part of the, the background of many kind of audiovisual products where we'll, we'll sample bits from the 40s, 50s, 60s using these industrial, scientific, educational films, often for comedic effect. But this was a time where many scholars have said, you know, there was, there was virtually no production industry of Australian film during those two decades, the 40s and 50s. Shell film years. That's right. Mm -hmm. So there were the odd things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, there were international productions. We had British and American productions come out uh, to do occasional kind of low-budget studio features here. But it really was the nadir for Australian. Uh, feature film production. So this is sort of 59 to 66 in particular? No, this is like from 45 to uh, probably early 70s, really before the Renaissance occurs, when right, the feature but, film Renaissance. But there's almost, there's literally nothing, isn't there, between very, very On the Beach and There Are Weird Not. Oh no, there's a, there's a handful of things, but there's again, something. very marginal. Okay. So... I was looking through um, Woomera films. Mm -hmm. Woomera is the, uh, the joint Australian-British, former uh, joint Australian-British um, testing ground for rockets and, and missiles and jets and all kinds of military uh, equipment that then became um, associated with the British nuclear tests at Maralinga, the Montebellos and Emu in Australia in the, in the 50s. There was a lot of films being made about really industrial and scientific processes of jet propulsion, uh, fuels, rocket launches, but at the same time there was a huge amount of um, new technology being devoted to how do you capture this stuff. 
high-speed motion film, special lenses, special emulsion of film that could kind of capture scientific aspects, um, long lenses, uh, devices, theodolites that would you know, move and track satellites and rockets and jets and things like that. Some of this was imported from the British and the Americas, but also some of it was generated here. So there's a, there's a kind of unique history to Australian innovation and invention around these activities um, that is yet to be recorded. So there's oral history to be conducted, there's some retrospective historical analysis of this type of film. But also we're looking at not just those things, we're looking at uh, religious films, as you say, the Shell film unit, um, there may be pastoralist material, there'll be amateur films. So the idea is to kind of audit this material, but look at it in a way that a conventional archivist wouldn't necessarily. So for example, we would hope that there may be some footage, say around the Giles weather station out in um, remote Western Australia, where a film crew may have gone out to uh, film weather balloons going up. Well, at the same time, they will have been recording the topography, the flora and the fauna. So we have some unique opportunities to see things about what was the climate like at that point of time? What was the geology like, you know? So, Apart from the customs of what people wore or what they ate, what they drove, um, which are often the type of things that people look for in their annotations, there may be all kinds of hidden material that, through a deeper annotative analysis of this material, um, will see the light of day. Mm -hmm. And again, getting back to what I was saying earlier, with big pattern recognition, um, once you accrue this material and you start to tabularise it or create matrices of information, you can, you can see patterns emerging. And mm. hopefully this work uh, will be made available um, for a series of exhibitions. Hopefully ACME might put on a... ACME? Uh, yes. The Australian Centre for the Moving Image in Melbourne. Um, or some other agencies may put on an exhibition for the public. We want to have a public Vimeo tube, uh, a Vimeo channel, like YouTube, where um, this material can be released, where there's no copyright infringement. Um, and we want people to donate material if they have such things, or they come across this material, um, so that we can locate it and assess it and preserve it before it potentially is damaged or lost. Now, you've got intense familiarity with the National Film and Sound Archive in Australia. What uh, role does it have in this, if any? Not much in the sense that we've deliberately gone for the um, unrecognised material. So the nice thing about the National Film and Sound Archive, even though it's increasingly being under-resourced by successive governments, is that while we will partner with them, we won't be trying to duplicate their resources or um, go looking for material that we already know is there. This is about, for example, looking at the ASIO archives, the special branch archives. Uh, ASIO is the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, which is... The equivalent of MI5 and um, the FBI. So it's the domestic intelligence, counterintelligence, and um, uh, they did a lot of surveillance uh, of Australians throughout the Cold War. And the question is, who, was, who trained the people in making these films? How, what equipment were they using? Where were these films actually... Um, Process, which laboratories, who had the security clearance, who were the editors putting this material together. So there's a whole oral history there and a, and a kind of para-industry that no one's really thought about or talked about. And some of these people may have crossovers into mainstream 
industry. They may have been ABC editors. They may have been getting clearance to work on defence-related things and moonlight in these other areas. ABC is Australian Broadcasting Corporation akin to the CBC or the BBC or PBS. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can see the potential for this being quite a large mm -hmm. project. It's going to run four years, um, but the more we discover, the more we'll find what we can gift to the nation, I guess, and leave it to other researchers into the future to mine that data mm. and, and use it and reuse it in ways that... That's wonderful. Particularly with technologies and platforms, we can't even imagine at this point. So one of the interesting things about your career as I read it, Mick, which is partly activist, partly uh, screen production, partly scholarly, partly bureaucratic, is that you, on the one hand, have the kind of completeness fetish of the archivist or, or collector, or historian, or collector, right? On the other, you or there, you have three hands. You have the, this fetish. Then you have the uh, scholarly, textual analyst. Then you have the person who is the en intellectual engagé, thinking about the political economy of all this stuff, as it were, right? And the science of it, in fact. That these three are in a dynamic relationship for you. So the, you know, we've got to get every single film there is thing. You've got that which is great because that means you're not extrapolating out of your ass, you're actually, you know what's physically there, was there. You've got the, what, how do these things make sense, how do they make meaning, and you've got the, how is this done? Whom did this benefit? What are the problems in all of this? What's gestured at, but what is also hidden, what is secreted and what is secreted? Yeah, that's yeah, how I I, I, I agree, absolutely. Uh, but an increasing aspect too is, public engagement and community engagement. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, it took me probably 20 years in this game to realise, and I, I think this was when I first went to Rwanda um, to work with community on telling their stories. The, indig the indigeneity, what, what I found missing was, you know, where were the Rwandan stories about Rwanda? We were getting lots of Hollywood stories about Rwanda. Um, this is in the decade after the, the genocide because there's virtually nothing in the first decade. Um, but working with community in that context made me realise that um, there are all kinds of perspectives and stories. And again, the Global Leave Action Project, um, intergenerationally, the way that um, communication is often delayed, forestalled, um, interpolated, or reborn and renewed across generation. And once community has... It's a bit like the old workers, <laughs> you know, controlling the means of production. Once um, media is disaggregated and removed from you know the kind of hegemony that we we normally notionally um, see it controlled by. Um, there's a great liberation, of course, in community-based media mm. in, in sharing mm. and recording and preserving their stories and their knowledge the way they want to. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward mm -hmm. to the day when, you know, following Eric Michaels with the Aboriginal invention of television, we will have generations of Indigenous peoples that have been marginalised. Um, and otherwise communities that have been disenfranchised, um, perhaps using social media, perhaps using digital media in new ways, but also reconnecting with their histories, building and accruing these narratives and stories and making sense of their past, but also using that through, you know, perhaps even exchange with other communities, looking at precedents, looking at um, ways of militating against 
what really is a pretty raw deal when it comes to mainstream media. We've got about five minutes left, Mick. I wondered if you could talk about your Rwandan project and trauma, a topic you've touched on a couple of times. But you just mentioned Rwanda. There's, mm. there's quite a bit of stuff you've done about this. If you could, first of all, tell us where people can find it, but secondly, tell us what it is. It's fairly dispersed, Toby. Um, what intrigued me about um, Rwanda was the, the real visceral shock of that genocide playing out while I was an adult. I was too young when the uh, Cambodian genocide occurred under Pol Pot, um, but I never thought as a student of the apocalyptic that I would hear and see apocalyptic discourse and narrative being once again um, presented as a national strategy of ethnic cleansing. Um, not only, uh, well more so in Rwanda than certainly in um, the Balkans. So um, what, what struck me about Rwanda was also the total incapacity of the, of the world community, our elected leaders, um, supposedly liberal democratic uh, countries, intervening. Um, and in fact turning a blind eye. Mm -hmm. um, refusing to use the word genocide um, because that would have immediately invoked United Nations responses. So I was appalled, of course, but felt impotent. What can I do? Um, and it took a while to think about an approach to that because suddenly around about the time of the 10th anniversary, so we're talking about 2004, the genocide occurred in 1994, mostly in April, um, there were a raft of films, Western films, that came out about this. And it seemed to me that this was, once again, disaster du jour, you know, a little wave, a little peak, having done all this kind of, um, you know, taxonomy of other types of films, I could see how this was repeating its wave around Rwanda. But there was no sense of an Indigenous voice. So I worked with a good colleague here, a former colleague of yours, Martin Mando, uh, Tanzanian filmmaker, academic, and we went on an on a exploratory tour to Rwanda to meet with filmmakers, to meet with uh, community leaders, uh, particularly victims' communities, and to listen, just to hear their stories and see how we might come back again with some ideas to work in partnership, not to come and imprint a Western model or a Western style of narrative transmission or production, mm -hmm. but to think how we might use our resources and our um, knowledge mm -hmm. to engage with those communities. Mm -hmm. So subsequently I went back and worked with the uh, Genocide Commission and the Kigali Memorial Centre around recording and preserving testimony. Because the great fear amongst that community was um, those few remaining people that may have been witness um, that were either uh, damaged in some way through the violence or were of, of an age that they may be passing soon, there was some need to get that testimony. So I tried to suggest ways in which they could ethically go about recording that testimony using some best practice around oral history and um, truly informed consent, what that meant, so that the people that were already traumatised by their um, experiences would never be put in a situation where the transmission of their experience in front of this apparatus, in front of this person, would re-traumatise them. Mm. 
So I ran a number of workshops around those, those types of training about um, what we knew about uh, transference, uh, vicarious trauma, mm-hmm. all of these types of things. And um, yeah, hof- hopefully I, I helped plant a bit of a seed for, the, for a generation of young um, Rwandans who themselves were victims of mm-hmm. um, the genocide, but often were very young at the time. So these were people in their 20s, to mid 20, early 20s to mid 20s going out and recording. Um, mm. And they themselves, part of the workshop, was dealing with their own trauma, of listening to trauma. Mm. So um, I'm delighted to say that um, a very good collaborator, Yves Cameronsi, uh, is now the director of the um, Genocide Memorial. And he started off with a great project looking at mapping the genocide using new technology, GPS, digital media, um, and was very conscious, as has been uh, President Kagame, uh, about bringing ICT into uh, Rwanda. Information and, and communication technology. That's correct. And, and trying to you know, be at the vanguard of uh, the, the, the digital realm in, in Africa. Mm-hmm. So he's, as a part of his national agenda, he's kind of pushed towards this. Uh, putting fibre optic cable through and things like that, but also providing um, portable devices, laptops, cheap laptops, um, into communities, into schools. Education is the way to beat genocide. That's the kind of mantra that um, the new Rwanda is talking about. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's great to see someone like my colleague Eve now running that organisation because he himself is a survivor. But he's also been very attuned and sensitive to mm. the issues of trauma and its impact. Um, but yeah, I also worked with social psychologists here at, at Murdoch. Uh, we went back and we, were, we ran sessions and seminars. Um, so, you know, the immensity of the impact mm. and the intergenerational impact is something, it's just staggering. Mm. So, speaking about joyfulness and happy things. Mm. What makes me joyful is to see the resilience of these communities, whether they're global Hibakusha or Rwanda genocide survivors, that they get on with their day, that they will fight back, they will not be defeated by this. And they find really interesting cultural ways of expressing that. And that is something to be celebrated. The resilience of storytelling. Yes, yes. Not only of storytelling, but of, of creating artefacts, of sharing experiences. Um, and that's an abiding uh, feature in the analysis of trauma and its, and its kind of um, creative expression. Um, and there, of course, are social, cultural specificities of um, those types of shared experiences or not of trauma. But there are also a lot of commonalities. So we can all learn from these experiences. Uh, I know I have. <laughs> Well, Mick Broderick, thank you very much. I've been learning from you on and off for almost 30 years since I first bought... I think think the shoe's on the other foot, Toby. ...nuclear films. It was really great to talk to you, and please do come back next time into the pod with a report from the front of this fascinating work that you're doing with John Hughes, Ross Gibson and others. That would be great. Thank you very much. Thanks, Toby.